I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. Our guest today is Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand. I interviewed her with The Economist's editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddows, at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Arden holds a delicate balance of power. She didn't win the 2017 election outright. Her Labour Party came second to the Conservative Nationals. But she built an unlikely coalition with the populist New Zealand First Party, supported by the Greens. Abroad, she's projected a bold and progressive image. Vogue magazine hailed her as the anti-Trump. She preached kindness at the UN General Assembly session, where President Trump announced America's devotion to patriotism. But at home, the message may be less clear-cut. Grand statements against protectionism have sometimes contrasted with defensive measures, decreasing immigration and blocking foreigners from buying houses. Jacinda Ardern is in Davos to talk about her headline policy for 2019, a well-being budget. So we're asking, is New Zealand a laboratory for progressive politics? Jacinda Ardern, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you very much. Short answer, is it? Well, we've certainly been a laboratory before, uh, and it is fair to say that uh, what we're trying to do with the wellbeing budget hasn't really been done to this degree before. Certainly, a number of other countries have for some time started to use a range of scorecards, other measures beyond GDP to demonstrate the well-being or otherwise of their citizens, their environment and so on. But what we're trying to do with the well-being budget is go beyond scorecards and try and entrench different processes, forms of policy development, even to the extent that we're putting in reforms around our Public Finance Act and even our public service, uh, to make sure that we address entrenched intergenerational issues and in a way that goes beyond just economic measures of success. I noticed that when you first came into office, you gave a big interview in which you took the bull by the horns a bit, a subject we discuss here in Davos endlessly, capitalism and where it's headed now. And you called it a blatant failure. The context was the extent of of homelessness in New Mm. Zealand. And that made me wonder whether what you're doing now arises from a systemic criticism of capitalism, or whether you just see it as a rebalancing of budgets, of priorities, things that progressive governments have done for decades. And the reason I, I called it a blatant failure was because if you do start to look at these measures beyond uh, simply, for instance, GDP, then unquestionably, from individual New Zealanders' perspective, me saying that uh, we've got projected GDP growth of 3% into 2019, that's meaningless to them if they struggle to buy a home or in their estate of homelessness or their mental health or well-being is, is poor and we have some of the highest youth suicide statistics in the OECD. So so for us, these there are these blatant failures that tells us policymakers and politicians that we need to retool some of the tools that we have currently. So for instance, I use the example of the Public Finance Act. 
You know, we have, uh, as many economies are, an issue with child poverty. Uh, What we've said is, of course, what gets measured gets done. We've recently changed the Public Finance Act to say that every budget we will now report on child poverty figures in New Zealand. It's a way of focusing our public policy making uh, towards an area that we know will make a difference, not just morally, but in terms of the future productivity of our citizens. So can I delve a little bit more into the details? The name is great, a well-being budget. And as you say, New Zealand has a history of leading and then other countries follow, whether it's inflation targeting or lots of other uh, policies. But how do you decide which measures of well-being you're going to focus on? How do you make trade-offs between them? And how then do you measure the success of your policy? How, how will we know whether the well-being budget has worked? Great question. And this is a starting point for us. And we've been very open about the fact that this is just the beginning. One of the things that our Treasury has done is established what's called a living standards framework. They're looking across four areas, of course, natural, capital, human, social and well-being, uh, uh, of course, economic uh, measures uh, and and cultural as well. Uh, Trying to find ways of measuring under each of those is something that is going to take us some time. But of course, we using things like social isolation, level of connectedness, and things that we currently do through some of the survey work uh, that we have. So those are some of the markers and indicators that we have. Uh, And then each budget, we're setting a set of priorities. So for instance, this budget, we're honing specifically in on mental health and well-being, particularly for under 24-year-olds. We know that if you're a young person and you manifest with mental health issues, actually, that's an indicator of your mental health in the future and whether or not you're likely to continue to have mental health issues as an adult. We're honing in on child poverty and domestic violence because we know those issues are interconnected. Uh, And so we've got measures around each of those. We're able to tell where we're at now, what our baseline is, and then how we're tracking down the track. But the key will be in the budget, what are the policies that we will change as a result to improve those indicators? That sounds great. So you're going to have more measures of things beyond GDP. But how are you then going to do the basic trade-offs that are involved in any budget? Budgets are basically about making choices. And you've laid out environmental goals, child poverty goals, all kinds of wonderful goals. But in the end, somebody has to decide, is the last marginal dollar going into that pocket or is it going to that pocket? And how do you decide that in a well-being budget? And that's the exact point of the well-being priorities. So we've now said there are five priorities. If you're a minister, you need to demonstrate... So the environment minister does better than the child poverty minister? Well, the environment, one of the priorities is transitioning our economy to a low-carbon economy and ensuring that we have productive business. So if you can demonstrate to us that you're fulfilling that priority, then then you've got a chance. Um, but j- just to give you a very specific example as to why this is important, some of the reasons that we think it's important to start making these trade-offs. When we first came into government, we had a spending proposal brought to us, a hangover from the last government. It was a prison rebuild, Waikiria Prison. Uh, Treasury was arguing to us that the most efficient way to deal with the fact that we had a dilapidated prison was to build a 2,500-bed prison because that's where you got the best bang for buck in terms of the per-bed cost. Uh, 
Now, if you'd just taken a traditional way of measuring that project, you would have built a 2,500-bed prison. And we said, well, that doesn't take into account some of the issues that we're trying to deal with, whether or not we're reintegrating, whether or not we've got um, mental health facilities, whether or not we're dealing with drug and alcohol addiction in our justice system. So we decided to take a completely different approach, measured those issues, and came out with a solution that said, a 500-bed prison with a mental health facility with extra investment into reintegration and drug and alcohol issues. That was our way of applying a different lens to what otherwise would have been treated as a very um, traditional cost-benefit analysis. Can I just bring you back to the economy? You cited growth earlier as something that people often feel they don't experience themselves Mm. and perhaps one of the turns that global capitalism has has taken that hasn't really paid off in the minds of many citizens is to sort of keep hitting them with GDP figures and hoping that they they feel better. (laughs) But in fact, you might have the opposite problem coming down the track at you looking at uh, OECD projections. Your growth is projected to edge down to 2.6%, which is a bit of a a falling off from the 3% that you've been citing. Do you not worry that when you get into that crunch, people actually do then start to say, well, hang on, this is all very well in a high growth environment. But if I'm worried more generally about economic outlook, uh, perhaps I have sort of less bandwidth for the sort of experimental yeah. ideas that you're talking about. Yeah. And actually, we need to start ensuring that some of the objectives that we have, they're, they're not fair weather, that they endure. And one thing I will say about the, the work that we're doing, there's a very good reason why Treasury owns the Living Standard Frameworks. We want this to endure beyond political cycle, and having the Treasury own some of that framework is really important for that. But actually, when you think about issues of well-being, these are issues that are beginning to affect our democracy. And when you have destabilisation of our democracies, that starts to have an effect on growth. So I do think these things are actually interconnected. You hear the conversations now coming out of the IMF. They're telling us, they're forewarning us that global growth is is looking to diminish. And what are some of the drivers of that? Trade tensions. What are some of the drivers of that dissatisfaction domestically from people not having seen the benefit of prosperity, whether it be through their trade agenda or otherwise? So I see good times being linked to greater sharing of prosperity at a domestic level. And for you, the well-being budget is the tool to ensure that you do have that greater sharing. Exactly. That then leads, I guess, to the question you're now preparing the first one. How dramatic a change in public spending priorities should we expect to see from New Zealand as a result? We already set out when we first came into office that there was, rightly or wrongly, perceptions around labour governments and economic management. Now, as much as we push back quite hard on that, because, of course, the last labour government, nine years in office, Nine uh, budget surpluses, net crown debt incredibly low, low unemployment, some of the lowest unemployment in the OECD, strongest continuous economic growth since World War Two. And yet <laughs> we've noted the ad slot. Thank you. This is um, this has been brought to you by a new Labour prime minister. <laughs> but and yet, despite that. There was the scepticism that we would come in and would we be good economic managers? And so we created this idea of the budget responsibility rules. So we've already said we will deliver budget surpluses. We will get crown debt to 20% of GDP, spending uh, at about 30%. We will restart contributions to our national super fund to make sure we're prepared for people's retirement. And we will work on 
making our tax system fairer. So those are the parameters that even with a wellbeing budget, we will be working within. When we look at the tensions that must arise from having a sort of multi-coloured coalition that, that you've yes. put together there, it sounds as if wellbeing is for you a possible answer to the kind of dissatisfactions which might otherwise come from the right. New Zealand first being Mm. the motto of those who are in in coalition with you, but have a very different view of that. Do you worry that these two goals kind of begin to get mixed up because you are actually pushing a line out there for progressive politics? On the other hand, you have something which in the end has to work to keep voters who have national concerns with thinking about their national well-being first and foremost on site. Is it as easy to put these two things together as you'd like us to think? Oh, look, nothing's easy in politics and I don't want to make it look or sound easy. It, it's not. And as I say, we're very open about the fact that this is year one. We won't get everything right. This is a, a long-term project. But keep in mind, when we, this coalition government was formed, it was announced by the leader of New Zealand First, Winston Peters. He was the one that said the status quo won't do. He was the one that, at that time that he made that decision, based that decision on the fact that New Zealanders as individuals had been poorly served, and he made his decision over who he would form a government off the back of that. So we're delivering on that. But you have had to give a bit of ground, haven't you? I'm just going to take an example there. You're Mm. banning the sale of some homes to foreigners. That's sort of sending out slightly more protectionist messages. Are there things that test your own worldview? And what do you find hardest in that coalition? Absolutely no qualms with that. That was a Labour policy. Um, Because all the, the sale of residential housing, bringing in that, brought us into line with most other developed nations we tend to compare ourselves to. Australia has the exact same uh, or very similar provisions. This was about saying we welcome foreign direct investment, but investing in our residential housing market is not productive. But the IMF doesn't agree with you and it says it wouldn't have the desired effect. Well, it's not the foreign direct investment that we're looking for. And actually, for me, whoever chooses to come and call New Zealand home from wherever they come from. I want them to have the option of home ownership. And our rates of home ownership were declining. And so we're looking at multiple ways of improving those numbers. Can I ask you about another aspect of New Zealand's relationship with the rest of the world, which is trade and trade deals? Yes. You were in London talking, I think, about the prospect of a deal with uh, post-Brexit Britain. But I suspect the real prize for you is a free trade deal with the EU rather than with a rather smaller Britain. We'll do both. Which which one is more important for you? I think logistically, obviously, we're already underway with the EU. We're in the middle of talks. And so the fact that we're underway means that logistically, I I would anticipate that that one will draw to conclusion sooner. The UK, of course, they need to be in a position to even negotiate. The groundwork's being laid. We're at the moment concluding our consultation um, to set the groundwork for a negotiation. Um, But Even then, uh, they're not able, even under current provisions, depending on the outcome that they negotiate, unlikely to be able to even enter into an FTA until beyond 2020. So it's really just a logistical question. And and what about the broader environment for global trade? Because you are potentially, I would have thought, somewhat at risk from this splitting between the US and China and Mm. the tensions to the global trading system and the growing rivalry between the US and China. How high up on the list of things that worries you is that? For me, any erosion of multilateral institutions, any erosion of predictability, reliability, um, a well, rules-based order... That's gone. 
is is a challenge, is a threat to not just New Zealand but to all of us. The reason I think it's heightened for New Zealand is because, of course, we are a trading nation. Our size means, of course, we are perhaps perceived to be more reliant on a rules-based order because... Uh, we're not the most powerful in the room. And are you worried about what China is doing? I'm worried about the global environment. There's a tit-for-tat trade war going on, but that takes more than one. <laughs> a quick word on Brexit, seeing as Sunny mentioned it. I mean, you've had talks in London. You came at a fairly dramatic time, it would be it fair, was. fair to say. How did it strike you? In a word, I mean, you know, the timing, of course, means that you know, we didn't quite anticipate it being uh, really quite in the middle of, of the, the debate and discussion, uh, but very helpful for us still to be able to pass on what was particularly relevant message at that time, that, that a, a no-deal Brexit isn't going to be good for anyone externally, just the level of uncertainty that that creates. So um, what would your advice be to Theresa May now in this particularly difficult time when no deal Brexit seems to be getting rather close. I think probably the last thing a politician needs in the midst of a situation like this is another politician coming in and giving advice. <laughs> and so I, I've refrained from doing that while I was there and will continue to do so. I do think I come from a different political environment. Uh, we have had MMP governments since 1996. And so I only know governments of compromise and consensus building. And so that means that our political parties probably have a, a political culture that's different. And we, I think, ultimately benefit from that. Governments of compromise and consensus building. You don't, you don't often hear a politician say that. When you look around the world, we're not in a world where globalisation seems to be in a very good place. We're no. not in a world where, as you say, the rules-based order isn't looking so great. Yeah. You've come up with a pretty bold approach of changing the, the national debate within New Zealand. Put your hat on for the globe, and I know that's a big ask, but what is the priority for ensuring that we don't splinter mm. out of this current rules-based system and that we actually create the more sustainable, progressive vision that you've, you're talking about in New Zealand? I think regardless of where you are in the world, or even regardless of your politics, one thing I think we can agree on is that so many of the debates that we've seen in recent times have actually been a proxy for a growing dissatisfaction from voters. And what is the source of that dissatisfaction? I would at least argue it's that in amongst all of the discussion around progress and growth, to what degree has that been fairly spread? You know, we've had a report recently, a global NGO released, which talks about, for instance, global taxation issues. Uh, and that's just, I think, one example of where we're seeing uh, increasing dissatisfaction with people feeling that they're not, A, not getting ahead, but also not being fairly treated within our own domestic environments. So our answer in New Zealand is to try and get ahead of that and say, actually, it's not fair to blame trade. That's become a proxy. It's not fair to blame immigration. That has become a proxy. Multilateral institutions. It is not fair to blame those. We are the ones, I think, that have an option as politicians to either play on the fear or to give answers and hope. And when you say play on on the fear, the manifestation that you describe in its most obvious form 
is Donald Trump and the presidency of Donald Trump. You were described, I think, when you took office. I don't uh, tend as, to name names, but uh, it's a bit hard to avoid, isn't it? <laughs> well, the United States is an incredibly important global player. Uh, very diplomatic. But you've been described as the anti-Trump. Is that the way you see yourself? By Vogue magazine. By Vogue magazine, no less. <laughs> well, did you welcome that? I, I don't spend a, a lot of time and on comparisons or, you know, characterising myself relative to others in, in New Zealand. You know, but I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not just sort of niggling on to be a, you know, oh, no, I, irksome. But it, no, I I, it I just strikes that. me interviewing a lot of sort of liberally minded leaders, often here at, at Doubles yes. and beyond, that there was a period when it was felt that they should come into the room and tell you that they were against Trump and Trumpism. And now perhaps trying to find other ways to project their own values without clashing head-on with Donald Trump. Do you think that tells us something about the message getting through to elites? Well, as I say, I mean, I think that there are a range of different debates that have become proxies for a general dissatisfaction. I think if we just put it down to individual leaders or movements, then actually we, we might be missing the point. But there are these debates, and we're sitting here in Davos, which is, mm. you know, I guess, epicenter of the uh, at least perception of this global conversation distanced from ordinary people. And my sense is that we have these conversations every year um, yes. for the past few years. People get what the challenge is, but my sense is that very, very little has really been done mm. to address it. Mm. And I wondered whether you sense you're doing something concrete, we've talked about yeah. it here with your budget, but do you, when you talk to your fellow leaders, sense that? people really have understood the scale of the challenge and what's needed to address it. Are you optimistic on that? I am a natural optimist. Yeah, but, but given that... But I think um, there's one thing to understand it, to comprehend it, it's another to implement. One of the issues that I think probably all of us face is that turning the ship around in politics is slow and difficult. And this is a challenge that needs to move beyond political cycles. Even in New Zealand, we have a three-year cycle. That is a very short space of time. So at least for me, one of my goals is to create something that endures beyond a political cycle and certainly beyond me. I'll give you an example, child poverty. We have put measuring child poverty and reporting on it and setting targets on it into law. Now, some might say, you don't need to do that. Just set a policy and, and do it. But that is one attempt we're making to try and entrench a change within our system that says, regardless of what political stripes of any future government, let's actually start acknowledging that if children are living in deprivation, it hurts the long-term well-being and productivity of our country. And I don't care what flavour of politician you are, let's then act on that. And I guess this is something you feel particularly closely as a relatively new mother and being yes. a, a mother while yes. doing the job has become one of the things and perhaps most talked about about your premiership. Uh, you've obviously balanced new mother who's running the government. You took your time out and you've come back into it. What surprised you about that, either the reaction to it or were there things, and you can be pretty frank with us, and we're all women in the room, <laughs> what was harder than you thought? I think probably um, the thing that surprised me was just the, the positive reaction. I mean, I did not know what to expect. There were some around me who, who knew just before I was about to announce who were particularly negative. And so I, I came into it thinking, so oh, I'm going to... what would they say to you? Oh, just Too that, much of a risk. Yeah, it's that just people were going to think you will be distracted from the job, that there'll be chaos uh, while, while, while you're gone, or, or just all number of theories. 
um, or that just generally people would think that you were shirking your responsibilities. But that just wasn't the reaction. It was, you know, certainly there were quarters, I think, that viewed it in that way, but not overwhelmingly. It was positive. What surprised me... It did mean uh, giving the tiller over to Winston Peters, who's in your coalition, but in a sense also a rival who did quite well in terms of polling out of it. Did you have any... Oh, look, he's our Deputy Prime Minister. Any worries about that? When, when he does well, that's positive for our government. So, and I had absolutely no hesitation. It um, was exactly as I predicted it would be for those six weeks. Um, but you asked about the most surprising thing around around motherhood. I'd say it's probably it's not the logistical because I always anticipated that would be difficult uh, and <laughs> challenging, even just you know, um, just juggling papers and front packs as you're moving through airports. Um, but I, every time I remind myself uh, that I'm having an experience that every mother and parent does, and you have that secret little eyebrow raise as you walk through airports or go onto planes with other parents. So I feel like I'm in a little secret and, club and now. <laughs> do you feel differently about the job now? Has it changed you? I think I, I've experienced that thing that all parents probably do, where you just have that extra level of empathy for other parents who experience loss or grief or fear for their kids and just that sense they want better. I certainly felt like I had empathy for that before. I really feel it acutely now. Have you got your little girl with you in doubles? I do not. Too far? Too far. Bit bit of a long flight. (laughs) It's very long and it's such a short space of time. So she's with her dad this week. I enjoyed your cameo in a video promoting tourism to New Zealand and it joked that the country <laughs> is, depending where you're starting, so remote it's sometimes left off the map. That was You were kind of, you know, saying something a lot of people in New Zealand probably thought was... It's not even a joke. You will find that we are physically not on some maps or sometimes we'll be uh, on it twice because it, <laughs> they've printed it and, and we're on both sides. Sometimes... Uh, if we've created it, we might be in the centre. How are you going to put New Zealand back on the map or firmly on the map? Perhaps with a, a little progressive political experiment. <laughs> Jacinda Arden and Zanny Minton Meadows, thank you both for Thanks joining for us. Your time. Thank you. And we'd love to hear what you think. Do you want to become a New Zealander or might that progressive experiment end in disappointment? Write to us radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. And please take a moment to rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anne McElvoy and in Davos, this is The Economist. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.